I was introduced to Sean Singh, CEO of Visagen, by a mutual friend and couldn't be happier to share his company's efforts and story in developing the new generation of drug therapies for anxiety and depression. CNS, or Central Nervous System Diseases and Disorders, affect millions of people worldwide and current treatments are not only inadequate, but harmful, and many of them cause dependence. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. So let's deep dive into this point and discuss the clinical stage process in drug development and explain the push for faster acting, safer, and more convenient drug therapy options. Our conversation will also touch on the impacts of COVID, mental health, the various studies performed during the development process, and how a nasal spray formula differs systemically from oral-based treatment options and so much more. And before I forget, be sure to check out next week's conversation, episode number 51, with Tom McDonald and Trevor Perry for a boys night out at the Healthcare 360 studio. We talk, laugh, and talk about everything that affects us today. As always, I appreciate you stopping by Healthcare 360 for episode number 50 with Sean Singh. Glad you're here, only on Healthcare 360. So you in class two right now, or phase two rather? Well, we completed successfully there are three different drugs. So we've completed phase two for the lead drug for anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. The, the second one has completed an exploratory phase 2A. So you kind of go through an A-B process yep. in phase two. And the A is an exploratory, usually a small open label or a small blinded study that gives you a proof of concept in the patient population. And then you move to a more extensive, larger, multi-center, typically blinded, uh, obviously, phase 2B study. The 2B is successful, and that's always in patients. It's a go-no-go gate, a go into phase three. For the lead drug, PH94B, that's entering phase three after successful phase two. And we just had a fabulous FDA meeting that's made it clear what we have to do to satisfy the need for approval. The depression drug, PH10, has completed phase 2A. So its next step is to get into phase 2B, and that's something we hope to start in 21. The third drug is an oral drug, a pill. Is that the AV101? AV101. And with that, we've had some activity in clinical studies already, but the new discovery is combining it with another drug that increases the concentration in the brain of the active metabolite of the drug that does the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So. That's a different program where we're ending preclinical and we're going to go back into phase 1B if things look good. That's excellent. So most of the emphasis of activity is is on the drug entering phase 3 and the drug entering phase 2B. Understood. Okay. I know we jumped a little bit ahead and that's fine. I actually like that because we're here at Healthcare 360 to answer one question and one question only. Have people known there are alternatives to explore exhaust other options, would they take them? A lot of people are not educated as to what true healthcare is, what it looks like in traditional forms or non-traditional forms. So what we're trying to accomplish in the brand that we're building, and we've done it very successfully, is let's present to you some information, get some inside information, and you can actually start asking your doctors and finding out if that's going to work for you or not. That's ultimate question that we ask. And a lot of people appreciate that because it's not done. And I've been in the healthcare business for over 20 years. I'm the guy who 
build these clinical suites, whether it be an OR or a hybrid theater or a specialty facility or, or room for a particular surgeon or physician. So I'm really particular when it comes to details. If you just spent $4 million on a, a suite, a single room, it better be right. Oh, that's this. interesting. And we will look at the physicians and we'll look at how they're going about their day-to-day and where their pain points are. So we can come up with tangible solutions that last long-term. We'll promote a plan, work with those particular parties, and we'll help them construct it. We'll work with all the different vendor parties. And one of the biggest gaps actually in the area is that you may have a pool of anywhere between six to eight different vendor selections, but no one's connecting the dots, putting that synapse together to make sure that everything is flowing bi-directionally. Right. And that's what I focus on. Have you been seeing clinics within clinics? Like, have you seen, for example, ketamine clinics being set up inside of otherwise conventional clinics? Yeah, we have. There's a big push in that. Yeah, there's a huge push for that right now. That's actually a little bit of a, a new business model. There's not so much emphasis on the larger hospital institutions. It's actually more smaller, community-based, urgent care-based mm-hmm. outreach. There's a lot of need for that. We sat down with, uh, I believe it was episode two in the podcast, a good friend of mine who's an architect, works for Perkins & Will. She just went through 80% of people, as far as the consumers, are very dissatisfied with their health care. Mm-hmm. It's unpersonalized. There's no personal touch to it. The large hospitals, they know this. They're starting to build these smaller outreach clinics, outreach centers. That's what they're focusing on. And then based on that, and we are a very diverse podcast, I could sit here today right now and actually tell you where healthcare is going in the next five years and what it's going to look like, but even more than that, based on the conversations that we had off record and on record and (laughs) everything in between. Important intel. There's a lot of things changing. I mean, not just on the the bricks and mortar side, but the therapeutic side. Yeah. What do you find is the the top dogs there, the top three that you would identify the most? I think people want, especially in anxiety and depression, drugs have to work faster. Everything around in the world seems to need to be done faster, right? Mm-hmm. 3G, 4G, 5G. It's There's sort of that equivalent, in, at least in terms of, of anxiety and depression. And you look at drug sets and drug classes that have been around for decades. And they have a very limited amount of efficacy. If you look at antidepressants, for example, we know that the alphabet soup of generic antidepressants take a long time to work, six, eight weeks, 10 weeks. And we know based on a lot of data now over long periods of time with tens of thousands of, of, uh, of subjects that the, you have about a one in three shot of those drugs working hmm. to treat your depression if you're a first-time user. So you walk through psychotherapy, figure it out, and you've at least embraced depression as a disease, which is a really nice trend that's increasing the ability for people to access care, to erode the stigma a little bit of having depression. But again, if you go to embrace and you start to take antidepressants, you've got about a one in three shot of that working. And along the way, waiting six, seven, eight, ten weeks, you have to wrestle with a very known set of potential side effects. <laughs> and for many, those side effects and sometimes safety concerns are worse than managing the depression that's that's underlying the need to take the drugs in the first place. Right. So compliance wanes. And then if you're not successful over your first course, you then have to go through a washout period where you're still depressed 
You have to take nothing during the washout period because your next step is to try another. You go through this rinse and repeat process where ultimately you try to land on a particular drug, a particular dosing regimen that might fit. But many people go through three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine decades worth of that rinse and repeat process and still come up with no solutions. What the data will tell you is even after multiple tries, there's still a, a solid one-third of the patients in the United States wrestling with depression don't get any benefit. So you have a treatment-resistant population. There's no one-size-fits-all solution for depression either. So hmm. people have different stressors and triggers and traumas that induce it in the first place, and it's really got to be a careful approach. But the bottom line is, whether it's after multiple failures or whether it's right out of the gate, the goal that the new generation of drugs is trying to accomplish is just a fundamentally different way of trying to approach the disease mechanistically, pharmacologically. And some of them have focused on the NMDA receptor. We have a different approach with our second drug, PH10, through direct access to the limic amygdala. So new generation drugs have to work faster. They have to work much faster than six to 10 weeks, and they have to work better than one out of three hit rate. And they also have to not bring side effects and safety concerns that are as troubling as the underlying indication. So these yeah. are all things that impair functioning of people. Anxiety is the same thing, right? Everyone wants a quick solution, especially if you've got the onset hmm. of an anxiety trigger a stressor in the case of social anxiety, if you can predict that when you have to go give a speech or an interview like this or a presentation to colleagues, a performance where you know they're going to struggle with that, you need something like a rescue inhaler is to an asthma attack. Sure, I can see that. You need something that you can pull out of your briefcase, your purse, your backpack, up front of that event, and that doesn't work like a benzodiazepine. Benzodiazepines like Xanax, Valium, Ativan, those are commonly used for anxiety disorders. The challenge with those is they really have a bag of issues. So they work quickly, but you have, you have impairment, cognitive impairment, you have sedation, you have tolerance that builds up, uh, you have potential for overuse and misuse and addiction. We have a benzo epidemic in the U.S. equal to the opioid epidemic. People don't often know that, but mm -hmm. Uh, you'll find they're both a max set in many of the tragic cases. We need drugs that work quickly and safely and have an, a level of effectiveness that is satisfactory to people that really need them constantly. So let me ask you this. One of the first things you see in your website, visagen.com, when you go there, is I'm looking at it right now, looking uh -huh. beyond current treatments for central nervous system diseases. Okay? Yeah. The FDA gets a bad rap. Pharmaceutical companies get a bad rap. They just do. So you just went through some numbers. It's a one in three hit rate. So just to clarify, so one in three hit rate means that there's a 66% failure rate or acceptance rate of a drug being used properly. The data will show you that there's a study. This is for depression and antidepressants. So these are these are called SSRIs or SNRIs. So they're focused on neurotransmitters associated with serotonin, norepinephrine, mm -hmm. dopamine, yep. household names that have been on TV forever. And now they're off TV because they're generic. Right. These drugs, first time you use them, you just start taking one or the other. 
you have a one in three chance of that delivering a therapeutic benefit to you, an antidepressant effect, typically around six to eight weeks from when you start taking it. And in the initial couple of weeks, you may have more anxiety. You may have more suicidal thoughts. Depends on who you are, right? What age group you are. All of them have a black box warning about watch it. This may be more trouble than it's worth in the first few weeks. If you do go through the recommended dosing, look, there are millions of people that do benefit. That's a good thing. One out of three is still the one. These are people that are taking their kids to soccer, that are working, they're productive people who otherwise weren't. But that still leaves a large population that needs better relief than current medicine is delivering. That's one of the key goals. Looking at the side effects. Now, one of the reasons why I don't have cable television in my house is because I cannot stand the ads. I loathe them. Yeah. Particularly... My kids were young and they were asking me, hey, daddy, what's Viagra during an NFL football game? Couldn't stand it. So I cut the cord. I was one of an early adopter cord cutter. (laughs) Now, for example, when you see a pharmaceutical being promoted on TV, okay, they're going direct to consumers now. There is a list of side effects that are there. Yeah. One of my questions directly to you is this. It's really easy for a consumer to go to the doctor or to go to the therapist and say, hey, I heard about this drug. What do you think? What are some questions that consumers can ask to help protect themselves a little bit better? Because there is a list of side effects. You mentioned it a couple of times now. Sometimes that risk outweigh the benefits. Yeah. How can we educate them better? So there is a Sangra Guru. If you follow him on YouTube, he's meditative guru guy. Okay. We'll leave it at that. But people can find him on YouTube. He talked about that over 70% of the population on this planet is using some kind of pharmaceutical. And his opinion believes that's unnecessary. You just stated that over a million people are having positive benefits from it. So how can people weigh those differences and those side effects to make sure it's going to benefit them? The last thing you want to do is obviously have an adverse side effect in the patient, et cetera. Looking beyond regular treatments, I believe that. I mean, it's right. It's the first thing on your website, and that's fantastic. And that's to be commended. But how and what should people be doing? You're right. I think New Zealand's the only other market besides America that allows direct consumer advertising. And they're important. Very important tool. I think it's part of the picture, though. You're never going to learn everything you need to know from a 40-second ad that 10 seconds after it starts, the sweetness and light is over, and then it's the rest of the story, which you want to turn the volume off. Right? That doesn't do enough, but it does at least pick the interest For someone who might not otherwise realize what they've been embracing and dealing with actually can be helped. And there are so many millions of people. We have 17, 18 million people dealing with depression, another 20 million dealing with social anxiety disorder. Those numbers are going to skyrocket even more as a result of the diverse impact of the COVID pandemic and social unrest. And we're already seeing it. We're seeing prescriptions go up of these different types of medicines that are out there now, which we think they're inadequate. So when we say look and beyond, we think the current FDA approved medications for the indications that we're focused on, anxiety, depression, pain, we don't think they make it. They're just inadequate for what people really need to do. So getting to your question, what you want is, is to stimulate thought in the initial interest. So I'm all for advertising as a consumer, 
and hopefully down the road as a company that has a solution for helping to change the lives of people that are suffering from these diseases. So awareness a lot of times is picked because of the advertisement. Now, you don't want someone to go into a doctor's office with more knowledge about the drug and its potential (laughs) fit than the doctor has. Medical education that occurs within the industry to primary care physicians, to psychiatrists in the case of neuropsychiatry, to specialists in various indications. That's a critically important component of what companies do when their drugs get onto the market. So the medical community, through peer-reviewed publications, through data and science, those are the ways that you ultimately get the best success for people. And that success obviously flows to the industry. But if you want to change lives, you really need that dialogue where it's not just somebody coming in and reading what's on the internet because that drives doctors crazy. Because usually it's just a snack of the full meal they really need to have for that interactive dialogue. Now, I think one of the things I'm encouraged by as telemedicine becomes more prevalent, forced upon most of the industry as a result of the pandemic, I think that's one of the positive silver linings of all this is there, I think, is more interactivity between physician and patient or physician's assistant and patient. That education can increase the back and forth where you can ask questions. Just because a side effect is required to be highlighted by the FDA as one of a litany of potential side effects, it may be a very remote effect that the probability is extremely low. So you have to take a look at the prevalence of the various side effects, the severity of those side effects in the clinical studies. Were they drug-related side effects? Were they serious drug-related side effects? They're called SAEs. So was it a drug-related serious adverse event? Or was it just a serious adverse event the patient brought to the table on their own? Did they have a heart attack because they had cardiovascular disease while they were in a depression study? Those are kinds of things that are filtered out. And with proper assessment of the data that generated the approval, you can become more knowledgeable. A lot of drugs get more information too as they're introduced and used broadly in the market, right? So sometimes things don't come out in clinical studies that ultimately come out when a broader population uses the drug. You can't capture everything in a study. You have a Vioxx every once in a while. You have an Avandia. And luckily, we have a system to recall and stop the damage of something like that. But let me ask you this. So how long is a testing procedure go on? Because what I do want to dive into a little bit is that you talked about there's phases. Obviously, there's a phase yeah. one, two, and three. And each one of those phases has an A and a B before you can release the pharmaceutical. We'll give someone a solution long term. Uh, it really varies. It varies by disease. It varies by type of drug. It varies by the precedence that might exist that are applied to a development paradigm your drug fits or that needs to break. You really have to look at it almost case by case, right? Some drugs require thousands and thousands of patients. Uh, You see some of these vaccine studies going on right now where you've got 30,000 patients in some of the COVID vaccines trials right now. Other studies, it's only a couple hundred. So it really depends on the statistical power of the study and the benefit you're trying to prove, the efficacy and safety that you're trying to establish 
to the satisfaction of the FDA, what science and medicine drives to an outcome that says this drug is safe, Mm -hmm. this drug is more effective than placebo, statistically speaking, and warrants being introduced to a broad population paid for by people and, and healthcare providers. All of those different drugs in different therapeutic areas have different standards they have to to meet. Each therapeutic area may have or does have a different scale, for example. So in neuropsychiatric indications, there are sets of questionnaires that you ask the patients questions based upon their experience in the study. And you assess how they are before, and then you assess how they are after, and sometimes even during, to get a sense of whether there's an impactful change brought upon by the drug that was statistically not just a matter of chance. And there's statistical analytics and statistical plans that you must submit to the FDA before you do a study that says if the study runs this particular way and it's executed properly according to the protocol, if the data at the end of the day show a statistically significant separation, you can make the claim that it was the drug that was responsible for that outcome, not mere chance. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're looking for. So you're looking for separation in a blinded study. So people always have to know, was this an open label study where the patients knew what they were getting? Or was it a double blind study where the patient doesn't know and the physician doesn't know? All those eliminate bias and they hope to mitigate potential for a placebo effect, right? Because everyone getting into a study has some sense that they're going to win, right? But they don't really know whether they're going to get a drug or a placebo. That's called randomization to either the active drug or a placebo in the study. And so those are what you're comparing at the end of the day, your drug and its performance versus a placebo. Hopefully you have a separation that is statistically significant according to the plan you gave the FDA, so that when you come out of that, you're able to say what the benefit is. Sometimes the benefit is very modest and it's sufficient because it's going against nothing in the world that's making a difference currently. So what's the what did you find where the gaps were in the availability of different solutions for consumers who are dealing with anxiety and depression? You have NH, 9-4-B, PH-10, and AV-101. Three different drugs that are being introduced, they're all still in trials. They are not being released yet to the market and the public. Where are the gaps? Where are the gaps in the present system versus what you're trying to bring? And what is the speed and how fast these drugs will work against the 68 weeks that you mentioned earlier? Okay, so let's take anxiety first. The six to eight weeks has nothing to do with anxiety. That's only in the depression arena. I'll hit that second. So anxiety, if you have, for example, social anxiety disorder, 20 million Americans, adults and adolescents have this particular problem where they fear and they're anxious about judgment or humiliation or embarrassment in very common everyday situations. For most people, they're not a problem. But if you're suffering from social anxiety disorder, You're worried about going on a date, doing a job interview, making a presentation to your colleagues in a work setting or an academic setting, eating alone in a food court, going to a doctor's office. It's a broad diversity of potential social and performance-related situations 
that when you know they're on the way, trigger uh, anxiety-provoking feelings mm-hmm. of fear and anxiety. So for that today, there are three antidepressants that are FDA-approved for that indication. And 20 million people have this. It's a chronic indication. Typically, it starts in... Um, when I see indication, that just means disease. disease state. Right. It starts typically in adolescence, and especially with the rise of social media and the rise of team orientation in the workplace, even before COVID, there were increasing rates of social anxiety, and especially public speaking. Think about in a business context. Yeah. That's the number one fear of a lot of people is having to speak publicly. What people were able to take was an antidepressant three of them that are approved, all generic, but for a problem that arises more episodically, it's not all day, every day. You don't have an interview all day, every day, right? You have particular circumstances, typically predictable. And to take a drug like an antidepressant every single day and all the side effects that you have to wrestle with, yet you're looking for something that happens more episodically and you're trying to treat that, it's just not a really great fit. Those are the only FDA-approved drugs for that particular anxiety disorder. What people then also use, though, are what are called benzodiazepines, benzos, Mm -hmm. drugs like Xanax, Valium, Ativan. These drugs work very quickly. So within about 15 minutes, you'll see a benefit in terms of reducing your kind of fight-or-flight, fear and anxiety neurotransmissions in the brain. problem, though, is that those effects last quite a long time, 12 hours or so. And you have a a potential sedative effect. You have a potential cognitive impairment. So you're not as sharp as you typically might want to be to give a presentation to your colleagues, you know, in in a high-tech company in Silicon Valley, for example, Uh, or you're tired. And then the problem also with those is the more you take them, the longer you take them, the more you need to generate the same effect. So there's a tolerance that's built up. And along the way, you get to a point where you really are relying on them. And as a result, then you figure out there's, there's an epidemic issue, as we have in this country with addiction to benzos. Getting off them, stopping them, is in many cases more traumatic than anything the person's ever experienced in the anxiety that they're trying to wrestle down. It's very difficult to withdraw from them. While they work very quickly, they're really not a good long-term solution just like opioids are not a good long-term solution for pain. Right. Great in a short period of time, but beyond a really short period of time, it becomes troubling. There's also drugs called beta blockers used. So there's a blood pressure drug. Uh, again, off-label. In our country, as you know, a doctor can prescribe anything that he or she thinks is safe for a patient as long as it's approved for something. So even though there's no benzodiazepine approved for SAD, a doctor could prescribe it if he or she thinks that's going to be safe for the patient. That's the landscape you've got today. Let me jump in here with a fast question yeah. about addiction, 12 hours. And I'm imagining you're asking or you're bringing these up because this is something that you're going to combat against with got it. your introduction of these drugs to the market. So you're talking about benzos, highly addictive. You need more of them long term. Uh, there's a intolerance. You build up a tolerance to the sedative effect could last up to about 12 hours. You have to drive machinery potentially. Uh, you talked to, about soccer moms earlier in the conversation. There's a lot of factors that build into that. A lot of factors. Yeah, they're rough. 
they really are rough and prescriptions have been rising like crazy. There was right. a study that just came out that there's a 34% increase in prescriptions uh, since COVID hit. Right. So how are you combating that? How is Vistagen overcoming yeah. this? And if you can kind of pinpoint how you deal with addiction or lack thereof, uh, the 12 hour, the sedative effects, et cetera. Just yeah. in with that, I know we only covered anxiety so far, but if you can stick with that point. Sure. Well, what we look at generally when we're trying to figure out a drug to develop, right? Put money into, put time into, invest our stockholders' resources to try to bring to the world. It's not easy, especially for drugs you're trying to get into the brain to do heavy lifting and change lives. So we have to make sure we make some good decisions up front. We look for drugs that have a, what we call a fundamentally differentiated mechanism of action. That means the way they work, their pharmacology is totally different than anything that's approved. So that's screen number one. Number two, they have to be safe. They have to have a cost-benefit analysis that says the risk of side effects based on the way the drug is supposed to work in the brain is low, much lower than the current drugs that people are embracing and using to try to deal with the problem. Third thing is they can't just be for one thing. They have to be able to be used in multiple different markets. Right? So those are three screening criteria we've applied, and every one of our three drugs fits squarely into each of those particular criteria. And as to PH94B, what we looked for is people like the fact that benzos work quickly. A lot of people, for example, if they have to go get an MRI, closed MRI, very worried about that. Right. And when yeah. you're sitting in the lobby, you're worried about that mm -hmm. already before you even get in there. Pre-MRI testing, that anxiety that's associated with particularly predictable events, that's a real sweet spot here for pH94B in our mind. It works quickly. In the phase two development, it works within 10 to 15 minutes. We had a highly statistically significant result, P.002, which is in our industry is tremendous. <laughs> and that's why we're so excited because we get to replicate exactly in phase three the study that was done in phase two to generate that result. It's an acute treatment of anxiety in adult patients with social anxiety disorder. The other side of it is it can't impair your ability to function. So if you're a broker and you got to book trades or you've got to teach a class or give a speech, you can't be asleep and you can't be fuzzy. PH94B has shown none of those kinds of cognitive and sedative effects. And the reason is it doesn't get through the whole body. Many drugs have to get into the bloodstream to go where they need to go. It's a nasal spray formulation. So the way it works is totally different than drugs that you have to take as a pill. You take a benzodiazepine, it's got to go down through your liver, it's yeah. broken down your body, delivered to your blood, and it has to go from your blood to the brain. Our drug has a direct route from the nasal neurons to the part of the brain that affects fear and anxiety, the limbic amygdala. That's totally unique pharmacology. And as a result of that direct action, it's not bumping into other drugs. Benzo could bump into your cholesterol drug or your hypertension drug. All of them have to get metabolized by the liver yep. at some point. That's called drug-drug interaction. Explain that a little bit clearer. How is it not being circulated throughout the rest of the bloodstream throughout the body? The reason it's formulated as a nasal spray is that the receptors that activate the neuronal activity, 
the neural activity that causes the inhibition of fear and anxiety neurotransmission in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Those receptors are really only in the nasal passage. So if you were to drink a bottle of PH94B, it's not going to do anything to you because there's nowhere for that drug to bind, to do anything. It only binds to these chemosensory receptors. We call them there in the nasal passage. Mm -hmm. Those then activate neurons. They're called olfactory bulb neurons that are sitting right at the base of the brain, sort of where your smell capability is. As those neurons are activated, those then are what trigger neural events in the limbic amygdala. So you don't really need to go through the typical process of delivering the drug through the gut into the blood and into the brain because you've got a direct shot through those olfactory bulbs that are at the base of the brain into the brain. One of the things we see down the road, new moms, for example, there's 17% to 20% of new moms within three months of birth have postpartum anxiety, right? They can't get their child to breastfeed. They're worried the child's not going to wake up, all kinds of anxiety. So maternal mental health is important to us, both depression and anxiety. If you were to take a benzo, you have a worry that you're breastfeeding to your child. You're going to pass some of that benzo effect to the newborn. Hmm. A drug like PH94B isn't going to risk that. The ability to keep a drug out of the bloodstream in any detectable manner, and that's the way you assess blood, can you find the drug in there? We're giving microgram doses, so not milligrams. That's typically the case. Like you take ibuprofen, it's going to be 200 milligrams. We're giving micrograms. 3.2 micrograms is all that's needed to occupy the receptor in the nose in a way to generate that neural activity. In the case of pH94b, it's, it's a balancing effect you want to achieve in the brain. If you inhibit the expression of real excitatory activity and you stimulate the inhibitory, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but you're trying to create a balanced seesaw between inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmission in the brain so that you don't have an overbalance of one or the other. pH 10, for example, the goal is to stimulate activity. That's an antidepressant effect. Similar with neurons that are initially activated, but ultimately you try to stimulate the neurotransmission that generates the antidepressant effect. Kind of a fine-tuned march to go where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. One of the things you look for with CNS drugs is do they go off target? Are they, for example, occupying the chemosensory receptor as yeah. well as, say, the opioid receptor, right? You don't want to see that. And that's a lot of the reason why you have the kinds of side effects that occur in CNS drugs in particular, where they're going to do what they're supposed to do, but they're also going off target. So are you continuing the testing in the proper safety protocols that are needed to make sure that patients are safe long-term? That's something that's really important for me and for my audience, for, for that matter, is how is the safety ensured long-term? Well, there are two different modes, right? When you're in a development mode like we are in, everything is assessed in the context of controlled clinical studies. Mm -hmm. You can only assess what's within the scope of that study. And so you have particular inclusion and exclusion criteria to determine who can actually get into the study. And when they get in the study, it's very closely monitored what they take and how they take it and when they take it. And then when a study is over, you typically you keep those subjects involved 
in a post-study surveillance mode for safety to continue to check. And some people will go a year. Some people will go six months. Some people will go a month. It depends on the arrangement that it's made with the subject before they get into the study. You also have a specific safety database obligation that's a guideline from the FDA, which is 1,500 patients. All drugs that I'm aware of at this moment require that at least 1,500 human exposures to the drug occur before the FDA will give approval. Many of those exposures are in the context of the specific trials where you're determining efficacy as well as monitoring safety. You're always looking for both of those in studies that support approval from the efficacy side. You're always looking for safety and efficacy. And you have to catalog all that. You have to report it to the FDA. You have to keep very specific, meticulous records. Now, when you're in the market, when your drug's been approved, it shifts a little bit. You're no longer in a clinical trial setting, but companies will do post-market surveillance. Mm -hmm. uh, companies will have medical affairs personnel to answer questions in a hotline-like manner from physicians and patients. There's many ways where the post-market surveillance and those data are also fed back to the FDA. So as any drug-related serious adverse event is made aware to a company, that, that information gets funneled to the FDA. You put annual reports into FDA in terms of your, your drug's activity. You really keep a very close track of whatever it is. You definitely don't want to do any harm, right? Mm -hmm. So but there are some cases where the risk of potential side effect or adverse event is warranted given whatever the severity is of the if someone's suicidal they may take something that has a high risk of blood pressure dropping or cardiac complications or insomnia sexual dysfunction whatever the issue is weight gain those risks may be worth it to the patient in consultation with the doctor it really depends uh, on the person's life experiences and the guidance from the doctors. That's why I'm encouraged with the increase of telemedicine, because I think there'll be more interactive dialogues between patients and doctors that you don't really, may not have got before, yeah. you know, especially in the neuropsych arena. It's going to be more readily available. We did a lot of discussion on this podcast about telemedicine, what it's going to bring to the market and the benefits, also the drawbacks at the same time. What were some of the drawbacks? Number one complaint that most consumers have with their physicians is that there's five minutes of interaction versus against 15 minutes of paperwork or 20 minutes of paperwork just to properly chart yeah. what the reporting is and that communication looks like. No one else is in the room because of HIPAA laws and HIPAA requirements. So you have to be able to document it properly and you have to be able to properly code it at the same time. Yeah. Right now, the way that telemedicine is working is that Yes, there are companies that are out there that have good HIPAA compliance in firewalls. Uh, I have friends who can tell you otherwise. Put it to you that yeah. way. All right. And that's a good point. Right, right now, that. it's a URL and that's about it. So people can hack into the system very easy. And I know there's systems like doxy.me and they're saying the HIPAA compliant, the HIPAA compliant as far as holding and encrypting the information. But what about hacking? So that's one. The brick and mortar, the cost didn't go down. And I give an example of my family, for one, because we actually had a telemedicine visit uh, early on when COVID hit, when everything was shut down. 
I looked at the bill and it was the same cost. I'm like, okay, so why if we used our camera, the visit was shorter, the visit was scheduled, and it was uh, just a, more of a follow-up, why is it the same cost? So they need to adjust that. Yeah. The biggest issue with telemedicine at the moment is that there is no proper automated AI-driven documentation system. Mm. If you have an otter.ai, which is probably the best read-to-text or verbal-to-text software that's out there, Mm-hmm. there's nothing happening in front of you. So how do you know what the doctor said versus what you reported? There's nothing there. You have to take what the word is for it. So there needs to be some kind of interaction between the softwares, the computer screens, and the humans. All that has to kind of bleed and uh, come together. Interesting. So there's a couple of different issues with it. So again, it's early stages. It's telemedicine 1.0. There's going to be some follow-up there. But... When you're talking about using telemedicine more and more and more, some of the issues I'm looking at here is the dialogue. Because if they select one pharmaceutical and they eventually move over to your pharmaceutical drug, and then the washout period in between, all that has to be properly documented. And we're trusting a digital interface to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it has to be safe at the same time. Maybe I can bring a different perspective to it because the one thing that in neuropsychiatric indications in particular, I think that's a unique arena as compared to neurological or whether it's oncology or whatever. There is absolutely still, unfortunately, there are stigmas. There are social stigmas associated with outreach for mental health, less so now because of COVID. Quite honestly, I, I'm really happy that there is a bit of a silver lining with all this trauma is that there is a greater awareness of the mental health pandemic that's on the other side of this COVID, well, this side right now of this COVID pandemic. But people historically have had a hard time just reaching out for the kind of talk therapy that they need to get to the understanding that maybe there's a pharmacological or a drug treatment to combine with that talk therapy. They've been worried to say, well, I've got to go to my psychiatrist. I've got to go to the doctor. I've got to got to get off work now because I have to go take this appointment. And there's a lot of even going to the store, the Walgreens or CVS and getting certain kinds of medicine and worrying that the guy at the counter is going to call out the name of the medicine. That, that stigma causes a lot of people to not seek the assistance that they might be more comfortable getting in a telemedicine arena. You can I blame think- uh, Hollywood for that one because when someone says I have to go see my shrink, they think of a white coat with their arms crossed over like this. I mean, that's the first thing that pops into my head and everyone thinks of the movies. Yeah, and there's a part of Hollywood that's actually I'm starting to be very pleased with those who are coming out and talking, even Michelle Obama. There's others who are talking about, realistically, these are issues that I've wrestled with in my life. This is the way I attacked it. This is the other side of it. And then you also see, unfortunately, hmm. you know, the tragedies, Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Anthony Bourdain and, you know, these Kate Spade, these these also have raised awareness about the potential for these mental health, anxiety and depression are often a match set, actually, unfortunately. So it's I think it could galvanize to it could galvanize a lot more people to seek care if they suspect that they might have some of these issues. And so again, it's a confluence. Maybe it's part of a commercial. 
for a particular drug. Maybe it's a newspaper article in USA Today. Maybe it's a particular celebrity's experience. You put all these things together and, and people can seek help. And it's not just the patients that benefit, it's their caregivers and yeah. their family circles that benefit from these particular disorders. I and mean, can you imagine, I mean, let's just say 5 million of the 20 million people who wrestle every day with the debilitating effects of anxiety or depression become productive. All of a sudden, those people are back to work and, and are back to innovating and inventing. That's a 25% of the population that's already got the problem. What if it's 40%, 50%? So when we go to look for drugs like pH 94B and pH 10, we're trying to figure out, is there the potential to completely swing the pendulum to a new generation that works, builds on the successes of the past? The current antidepressants, for example, built on what was out in the 50s and 60s, improved on those quite sure. a bit. Now it's time for a new generation of anxiolytic drugs and antidepressants that work faster, have fewer side effects or significantly different safety profiles overall, and, and can access larger populations of people who we know out there are affected. Whether they're counted in the this, this surveys and the like, you know there are way more people with a particular problem than are ever captured in a survey context that's extrapolated. And that's global. Yeah, I see Not that. Not just the U.S. That you start to now figure out, boy, even if you hit 5% of the total pool and you change the lives of those 5% in a 180-degree manner where they're able to function normally and, and they're able to do that without the cost of other parts of their life being affected. So mm -hmm. you're not taking a drug for your depression that causes you to have wacky arm movements. You know? You're not taking a drug for anxiety that causes you to gain you know, 50 pounds and fall asleep all day long. It's that arena why we are so excited about what we're doing. So far, there's been no signals in our studies that tell us the drugs are going to cause addiction. You test that out. We'll, we will test our drug out against benzodiazepine addicts to see which one they like more. There's <laughs> for liking studies. Uh, you do this also with depression drugs. You, you know, anything that has potential to come abused, you want to make sure your drug doesn't fall into that category. We don't think our drugs are going to be scheduled, like say a drug like ketamine is. That comes with the safety profile that you've been able to demonstrate. So there haven't been any serious drug-related adverse events with any of our drugs in any study. And that's remarkable, but not, not surprising to us because we have insight as to how we think they work in the brain. And we also are able to screen whether, and, and usually this is done in preclinical studies, whether or not the drug is likely to hit an off-target receptor that you don't want to impact while you're trying to treat depression. You don't want to create an opioid addiction, for example. You can test those kinds of things. Science is amazing uh, in clinical and preclinical capabilities. You go through a lot of hoops and hurdles before you even come close to dosing a human healthy volunteer, let alone a patient. So phase one is usually healthy volunteers. If a drug is safe in that population that's got no apparent issue to wrestle with, then you progress into phase two. That's where patients come into play. Those are usually smaller studies. 
that you get a sense of whether your concept is proven in mm-hmm. the patient population you've targeted. And then if that is if that's successful, as it's been so far for us with two of our drugs, the third one's not reached to that point yet, then you move into a pivotal phase three program, which we are with PH94B. That then is what you use to create the dossier, a new drug application or NDA that you submit to the FDA with a lot of other information besides what's in those studies, manufacturing and uh, and so forth. So it's like a college admissions process where you have all, all kinds of different components to your application sure. that you submit. And we have fast track designation for PH94B from FDA, which is a path where you can have a little bit more flexibility in your communications with FDA for planning. And that's beneficial because you make sure you design exactly the right study and you do what you know will count down the road and not something that doesn't count. And also you can have your application reviewed somewhat on a rolling basis. So they don't have to look at everything all at once at the end. They can look at parts of it along the way to achieving the last study that you drop into to the mix. So all of this is intended to get a solution to patients as fast and efficiently as possible, but it's all science and medicine driven. What's the timeline for this? What's the roadmap look like? I mean, this seems verbally, it sounds like there's a lot. And I know there's a lot behind yeah. the scenes. You have to have everything well documented. You have to cross your T's, double dot your I's, et cetera. Yeah. But from beginning of the process to the end, how long does it typically take? Because I do know there's a race against time for yeah. the patent control. You yeah. want to maximize on the profits. I mean, let's. Yeah. Well, there. Even if you don't have a patent, if for a new chemical entity for the first time a drug's approved, the FDA will give you, and many other jurisdictions around the world will give you market regulatory market exclusivity. So that's typically on the low end five years, and the high end up to ten years. So there are appropriate incentives, even if the patent doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But the march can take. You know, and typically it's going to be. 15 years, 10 to 15 years from initial idea to the point where you actually get something that it can be shorter. We're seeing things obviously in the COVID context that hopefully are going to be record breaking, but still science and medicine driven and safe. It's possible to do it faster. It's just you have the whole ecosystem has to be engaged too, right? So access to capital, timing of capital, certain studies take longer than others. Sometimes resources to do production aren't available. And there's all kinds of issues along the way. And you amortize things that don't go right into the whole total program cost. And so it's it's a lot of money and a lot of time. I feel companies like Vistagen have a unique advantage because we really are narrowly focused. We don't have thousands of different assets that we're trying to navigate through channels. We've really targeted our focus and we've created a specific set of criteria that we think if if we're successful in picking the right ones, um, the return on those investments of time and resources is the benefit of the stockholders and the patients. How are you dealing with the competition? And the competition meaning in certain states is approval of THC and also psychedelic, low-grade psychedelic, microdose psychedelics everyone's going for the anxiety and the depression, okay? So you were just yeah. talking about having 15 years of having liquidity, stockholder meetings, 
uh, R&D, going through the FDA, through the whole protocol, and someone took a plant that's been around forever, and they've formulated it where they took out those larger long-term effects out trying to do the same thing. How do you yeah. balance against competition? Your drug has to stand on its own. It has to be a very compelling story. So whether it's on the safety side or whether payers will be uncomfortable because there aren't uh, randomized and controlled studies, are these anecdotal reports? Is it more on the holistic side of things? You know, there's, there's never one size fits all. And when you have a case where there's so many people in a particular market, and that's the case that you've got with anxiety and depression, it's... It's not difficult, even in the face of competition, either within your own industry. I mean, look at how many antidepressants are out there in the days when mm -hmm. that was what people were using. There were still those drugs available at those times yeah. as well. Mushrooms have been around forever, and marijuana has been around forever. So it's the case that, again, there's so much need. There's never one solution that seems to fit everybody for all times. And there's different components in the system that will say, look, if something's gone through the rigor of FDA compliance with safety and efficacy requirements to develop a drug through a standardized process that's been created in, in the wake of you know, thalidomide and, and bad problems in the world, you have some comfort from that, right? So uh, the answer is, look, you can't overwhelm, can't please everybody. And, yeah. and I think, fortunately, uh, from a commercial standpoint, the scope of the problem is so enormous that even a modest penetration into that pool of affected people, just thinking about it solely from the commercial side, which is not what drives us all day, every day. Look, of course, we have to be mindful and we have to achieve a return on our investment for our stockholders and generate value. But you can't do that without delivering benefits to patients, at least if you want to do that ethically and morally, you've got to deliver real benefits to people. Yeah. And you got to change their lives in a way that makes their lives better, that actually makes a difference without causing harm. And if we're, if we're able to do that, our stockholders will clearly win, no question. So our focus is mostly on deploying the resources needed to get to the point at the end of the day where we can say, yeah, we went through randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, peer-reviewed, published data, submitted to the FDA, vetted by partners, the best and the brightest in the world that are out there to assess whether drugs are safe and effective, have given their approval. That's as far as you can really go. How soon do you think you before you hit market, before you have full approval? It depends. You know, I, a month ago, I would have told you a lot longer than I'm going to tell you now, but <laughs> we, we were able to get a really remarkable outcome in discussions with FDA. And I, I got to tell you, our FDA is nobody better than our FDA. And the current head of the FDA, Dr. Hahn, they're looking at things in a way that I think is very productive and progressive, meaning if a new drug comes to the table, like PH94B, right, very rapid onset of activity. Uh, it has a, a shorter duration of effect, so one or two hours. And it's got a safety profile that's totally different than anything that's been approved for that indication. It warrants looking at its unique pharmacology in a different way. And then 
what's backing that up, that there really is visibility in a new way, is the kind of trial design that we've got agreement that will allow us to study the drug to get approval. So we have to study, we need 182 subjects completed in one of our phase threes, not thousands. And we have a second study that we, we see somewhere around 250 subjects in the efficacy side of it. And then we also create a safety database. It's one dose that we're looking at, one single event, one laboratory simulated public speaking challenge where people are told they have to give a speech to a group of people. And that's usually anxiety provoking for someone with SAD. Mm -hmm. People are randomized to drug and some are randomized to placebo. And then you compare the two groups. That's a very efficient study. It's only about a, a three to four week engagement by the subject in the process. So it's something that can be very efficiently conducted. It's not a 12-week study. It's not a four-week study. It's not multiple doses. It's not diverse events that you have to figure out. It's Everybody gets the same challenge in the same setting, the same dose, and you see how it works, some placebo, some drug. Right. So the ultimate goal would be you know, sometime within about three years, we complete the full phase three process. You have to run two studies and safety studies. So ideal scenarios, you know, sometime near the back end of 23, we've completed the two efficacy studies and we know we have statistically significant separation between PH94B and placebo. We have that. Now we're, you know, it's short cycle. You can't sneak up on these things. There, There's a process you have to walk. And luckily we're at the, I'd say we're rounding third. You know, we're on our way home finally. <laughs> That's a great analogy. So you're still we've about still three gotta, years away. We still got to get in there, but at least we're, we're, we've touched it. Now we're on our way. Yeah, no, no doubt. Approaching third. Maybe I should say that. We're approaching third. We've definitely rounded second. We're headed towards third. All right. So you're going in for the slide to see if you're there, and then you're going to keep going to home base. It'd be nice to be born on third base with the stand-up triple, but that's not the way it goes. We You have to grind through the process. Yeah, I get and you. We've done that really well in our predecessor, the company that we worked with and acquired these assets from Dr. Lewis Monte is the inventor of PH94B, PH10. And really it was his initial brilliance that led us all to where we are today with these potential of these drugs. So you've been around for a while. You've been doing this. I know in your profile, and we didn't really review it earlier on. I know we just jumped right into this, but uh, you had been doing this uh, well, actually, you've been, you, you've been a CEO of Visagen for 11 years plus. Uh, you've been yeah. in this for just under 30 years, uh, so 25 years on your bio. How did you get into the business? Well, I started off as a corporate finance lawyer at a big firm here in Silicon Valley, Morrison & Forster. And as a young lawyer, I was um, dispatched to work on securities offerings, lots of IPOs in the early 90s, high tech and biotech. My wife and I, we've been married 32 years, and we knew early on we wanted kids. And at the end of the day, I wanted to be able to say, look, we're, we're making money and helping people. And I just created an affinity. One of the companies that I had written their prospectus for, Cyclone Pharmaceuticals, ended up taking public. My passion leaned towards the biotech universe at the time. There were all kinds of, in the early 90s, things being done that had never been done before insulin being created, human growth hormone. There was just the whole sector around us here in South San Francisco, the birthplace of biotech, was just blooming. Mm. And so I, I had an affinity for the biotech side. And then ultimately, I knew I didn't want to 
live my life as a corporate finance lawyer and never see family and kids. And I decided to go in-house at the company I had taken public, uh, Cyclone. And we developed the drug there, and it was launched and commercialized, um, initially focused on hepatitis B and hepatitis C, and then also as a vaccine adjuvant for the bird flu vaccine and the successful immunostimulant. I was chief business officer of that NASDAQ public company. And after I had a, a kind of a midlife crisis at 36, I got flesh-eating bacteria from uh, a spider bite and had the flu. And I was just, you know, almost totally down for the count at age 36 with three kids and one on the way. And so after I recovered from that, I left Cyclone because we had fully capitalized it. The company was just doing fabulously. Uh, we'd taken it from 37 cents up to like $16, fully capitalized, really terrific story. I said, okay, that's it. And then I went to the contract research and venture capital side. And I was doing that. I did that for eight years in a way where we built a fund uh, leveraging the resources of a contract research organization or CRO that allowed us, it's called Cato BioVentures, allowed us to again incubate some very promising opportunities things that we thought could make a difference. Well, Vistagen was one of the portfolio companies that we had supported while I was on the venture side. I was on the board from Vistagen early in the 2000s. And that was when some of the focus was on stem cell technology, which we still have as a subsidiary. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the deal was, well, if I saw something that I thought could change the world and the lives of millions of people, I'd go in-house at that company out of the venture arena. So I left the venture fund where Vistagen was a portfolio company and went in-house to be full-time at Vistagen in 2009. So I've had a little bit of the buy side from a venture capital perspective, public mm. biotech, private biotech, law. Um, You're well-rounded. And, uh, and contract research. So all those things come together in the ecosystem you need to be successful if you're creating new medicine from a small company, more entrepreneurial environment. Being in Silicon Valley, I just never had an affinity for large. And so Big Pharma wasn't wasn't really the, the environment that I thought I could help make a difference from a leadership perspective. And this is. We're a small company internally, but we've got we've got scores of resources around us, different people with different disciplines that we use on a real-time and an as-needed basis. Not necessary in our industry to own capacity that exists flexibly. So we don't need to manufacture, for example. We yeah. can outsource that. We need to have wet labs where we're doing animal testing, for example. It's, it's just you put the mosaic together, and I think we get a lot of bang for our buck for our investors. It's, it's just a better environment. So far, so good. Yeah. We'll see. Well, you definitely have a lot of experience, that's for sure. Sean, in closing here, there's some staples uh, that I, I always ask. How do you keep yourself educated? What are some of your hobby-based readings, your professional-based readings? What do you look to to keep yourself on breast of what's happening in the market? The fortunate thing is I've got a tremendous set of human resources around me. So if I'm the smartest guy in a room, I'm in the wrong room. I'll tell you. <laughs> it's been the case since day one, uh, even when I started to have to learn how to write prospectuses as a lawyer. I've really had as a discipline, a lot asking questions and then listening. 
So doctors and, and scientists and regulatory specialists, commercial experts, I really absorb quite a bit of information from the people around me. Uh, I have daily feeds from our PR and our IR team where it's usually about 30, 40 articles a day. And a lot of them are real quick reads through, but they at least give me a snapshot on what's happening, keeping a pulse on the current trends. I learn a lot from the clinicians, uh, those that are on the front line. So we have an indication called adjustment disorder, for example, for PH94B. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a trauma that really in the midst of the COVID pandemic, whether it's economic loss, health and safety, social isolation, unemployment, there are traumas that people are experiencing within the last three months because of this pandemic and social unrest. So in talking to one of our clinicians, you know, I'm constantly asking them what's happening on the front lines. What are you seeing? What are people dealing with? Whether it's people, I have, I have experts in depression and neurology and anxiety. Those, those interactions are critical because what gets you excited when you're in a company, a public company in particular, is when you know that the clinical and the scientific universe is way ahead of wherever the market is. At least yeah. that's your feelings. Uh, that's where I look for our satisfaction and whether we're actually achieving things. What do partners say that do deep dive diligence into what we've got? What are the regulators saying when we have our private meetings with them? What do the clinicians say about the needs on the front line and how what we're doing fits the problems they're trying to wrestle down for people every day? So if if a doctor's telling me, look, I'm tired of prescribing benzos. I just don't like the other side of, of these prescriptions. I'm not doing it anymore. Or my hospital shut down the formulary's permission to offer these drugs. Those are all signals that direct decision-making internally. And so I keep myself abreast, again, back to the original question, read voraciously. I, I like to be an art of... Um, uh, there's a lot of information on our particular indication. So there's a lot of books you know, on... Uh, on anxiety. I was, I was just looking at that. I was noticing that. From the patient's perspective, there, there's a great book by Andrew Solomon, for example, called The Noonday Demon. that chronicles firsthand perspectives that patients experience. And so it's not just the doctor's side. They're one side of the equation. It's what are the patients wrestling with? And so you get some of that from the caregivers. But you also, we align with advocacy groups like the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. We, we get a lot of good input, I do at least, from their input. There are 38 million people that go to that ADAA website, and there's a lot of interaction now that you can gain to figure out where to direct programs based mm. upon real-world problems and not just theoretical issues. You can't do that anymore. you got to know what's actually happening on the ground in the real world. So we do outreach, we have focus groups, we have ways where I keep informed generally of what's happening out there in the world. And there's a lot. It just takes time. You got to have patient endurance. I, I completely agree. What about podcasts? What do you look to for podcasts on the audio side or even audible books? Audible has been, I walk about an hour and a half a day. Luckily I get that flexibility now that I'm not traveling a lot. That's been one of the silver linings of this pandemic. Yeah, haven't it? And I do yeah, kind of toggle between fiction and nonfiction on Audible. Lean more to fiction, I got to tell you. But on the nonfiction side, you know, books on negotiation, books on human behavior, 
the psychology of thinking, particular anything that's associated with mood and behavior in the nonfiction arena is fascinating to me. So I like to see what's at the cutting edge. And then you also have to give your mind a break every once in a while. We just did a full discussion with Tron Dunheim called The Pandemic Aftermath. Mm. And it was very, very good. And I read the book and it was broken down into five different segments, potentially of utopian chaos models, what certain scenarios would look like. It was fiction-based, but it had a nonfiction approach. It was really dynamic. It was very, very good. What was that called? It was called Pandemic Aftermath by Trond Unheim. Okay. Uh, Fantastic guy. He actually just turned on a podcast as well called Futurize. He's in the early stages of uh, launching it. Well-spoken, well-written, all the above. It's been good. Good. I appreciate that input. No, that's a great recommendation. We're changing as a society in so many ways and it's a global society and whether it's there's so many different potential anxiety and depression provoking triggers and stressors out there and then when you mix them and then you overlap them you know and then you're also got the anxiety of trying to figure out is there a fix at the same time you're wrestling with the underlying problem there, there's just we need I want psilocybin. I want all those competitors in the mix. There again, I want, there's so much room for the need to be satisfied. What we have isn't going to satisfy everybody's need. What our competitors have isn't going to satisfy everybody's need. Same thing Mm. with out of the norm, if you'd say, you know, the more anecdotal approaches. As long as it's safe, as long as it's doing no harm and it's got potential upside, or let's get it out there. Let's give patients multiple opportunities to address the problems that they know best need to be addressed. And having that interactivity, I think it's, it requires a talk therapy component no matter what. Mm-hmm. There's no magic bullet on the drug side, approved or unapproved, off-label, on-label. People need to talk to people. And these are problems with people, yeah. right? And I think we're luckily shifting to a society that's more willing to embrace these as diseases. I mean, when we would have been talking five to 10 years ago, and you're talking about breast cancer, it's similar to how people still talk about depression and anxiety today. Now someone says they got breast cancer. It's like, okay, got it. Here's how we go deal with it. Let's go do this, 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 and this, and let's get it done. Right. And I think that can happen with mental health. We want to be part of that. There's no question we can be part of that on the drug therapy side that can help improve the potential outcomes of the cognitive component that's associated with any drug therapy. It should be the talk side of it, right? And, and it's amazing to think what gets us up every day and gets me up every day is I've seen in my own family, extended family, the negative side of this. I've also fortunately had one of the three, right? Winners. Mm -hmm. So I've seen how the drug can actually make a difference. You know, embracing medical solutions to trauma. Like I told you, my life changed at 36. And that's where I just was all in into this business, biopharmaceuticals, biotechnology, ways to do things where people's lives can change. And now what happens? Even 1 million more productive people. Can you imagine? Oh, for sure. Last question is yours. This is uh, usually the toughest one, but the final word is yours. What would you like to leave everyone on? Whatever you're doing out there, if you're struggling, 
our website, it's got all kinds of resources. And I know there are people struggling. And they know just themselves and they know they haven't told anyone about it. Find the help. There's messages, especially if you're suicidal. Go to our website. There's a finding help page. We've specifically created that. And I've had our team list every resource we're currently aware of where you can seek help, whether it's talking on the phone or more information from NIH. Find it because these mental health issues associated with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, you can flip them. And we can change. And it's not just your own life. It's the lives of everybody around you and everybody you don't even know yet who you could make a positive impact in the hmm. world. So find it. I love that. that I call that the ripple effect. That's what I call the yeah. ripple effect. We just don't know where That's it is yet. Fabulous. Yeah. yeah. I never thought about that. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question, honestly, in all these different podcasts. But hmm. I hadn't pre-thought of it either. But that's sincere, organic, coming from my heart. It's, <laughs> it's you know, chokes me up a little bit because it. I've seen lives change when proper therapy is applied. Yeah, and it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable the freedom people feel when they've been able to knock it down. So now doing that with safer drugs that we think are more effective and faster, even better. Out of the entire ninety minutes we spent together. If someone just gets something out of that last 45 seconds at all that matters, that's it. And that's awesome. the goal at the end of the day. So, Sean, I will make sure that Vistagen is all over the podcast notes. Uh, you're going to see us all over social. I can't thank you enough for spending all your time with us. CEO of Silicon Valley, pharmaceutical-based company. And it sounds really promising. And I know right now, just to clarify for everybody, they're not released to the general public and to the market yet. We are approaching third hopefully rounding third soon, getting a home base. So hopefully right. these pharmaceutical drugs and solutions will be available sooner than later, especially how you noted how the FDA is actually streamlining and looking at different processes, especially with how you've introduced this drug therapy to the market. That's really promising and that's very cool. Thanks a lot, Scott. Well done. This is Scott Burgess. Thank you again for joining us in Healthcare 360. We always appreciate you. Thank you for being part of our audience. Uh, we'll see you in the next one. Take care. I want to thank Sean for sharing his wealth of knowledge with the Healthcare 360 Nation and the best and brightest. Please visit Vistagen.com. That's V-I-S-T-A-G-E-N.com to access resources and additional information of drug therapies to come. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoyed this conversation, share this podcast and give us a review. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you enjoy listening. If you want this conversation to continue, you can find us through my Instagram handle at Scott E. Burgess or direct message me on my direct WhatsApp plugin at scotteburgess.com. If you'd like to have a conversation or discuss a topic option on Healthcare 360, please look for the calendar link in the podcast notes below let's set up a time to talk. I hope this conversation empowers and educates HC360 Nation's best and brightest, and I look forward to building our relationship. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess. And from all of us with the Healthcare360 team, we'll see you next time.